If the white man wants to live in peace with the Indian, he can live in peace. There need be no trouble. Treat all men alike. Give them all the same law. Give them all an even chance to live and grow. You might as well expect the rivers to run backward, as that any man who was born a free man should be contented when penned up and denied liberty to go where he pleases. We only ask an even chance to live as other men live. We ask to be recognized as men. Let me be a free man, free to travel, free to stop, free to work, free to choose my own teachers, free to follow the religion of my fathers, free to think and talk and act for myself. Welcome to part two of I Will Fight No More Forever, the incredible story of Chief Joseph and his tribe of Nez Perce that were forced off their homeland in northeast Oregon by broken treaties and ended up leading the United States Cavalry on a 1,500-mile-plus exodus through rugged country on their path to what they hoped was freedom. The Nez Perce tribe, under the leadership of Chief Joseph, Looking Glass, White Bird, and others, fought a brilliant retreating battle through five states outwitting the army at every turn, and having to deal with the added burden of having to stay one step ahead of the soldiers, despite the fact that they were dragging the entire tribe and all its possessions, men, women, children, babies, dogs, horses, and their lodgings, through wild and mountainous terrain. The leaders of the Nez Perce had done their best to avoid brutality and killing, but the fighting and the thirst for revenge became too much for the warriors that had lost their relatives in battle. When the escaping and well-bloodied tribe reached the west entrance to Yellowstone Park, which had been opened to tourism just five years before in 1872 with the help of President Grant, nothing was going to stop them. When the Nez Perce entered Yellowstone, there were eight or nine parties of tourists totaling at least 35 persons in the park, plus several groups of prospectors. Two of these parties would experience hostile encounters with elements of the Nez Perce, the Raidersburg Party, as they became known, nine tourists from Raidersburg, Montana, had been in the park on August 23, 1877, for eight days. Made up of George F. and Emma Cowan, Emma's brother and sister, Frank and Ida Carpenter, Charles Mann, and Henry Myers. This group also included A.J. Arnold, William Dingy, and Albert Oldham from Alina, Montana. They were camped just west of the Lower Geyser Basin. General Sherman himself had been in the park as a tourist only a few days before. His scout reportedly assured members of the Raidersburg party that they would be perfectly safe from the Nez Perce. However, one of the tourists, Emma Cowan, noted that the Sherman party, quote, preferred being elsewhere as they left that same night, unquote. A second group of tourists, made up of entirely young men, became known as the Helena party. On the evening of August 23rd, Andrew Weikert, Richard Dietrich, Charles Kink, Frederick Pfister, Jack Stewart, Leonard Duncan, Joseph Roberts, August Fowler, Leslie Wilkie, and a Negro cook named Benjamin Stone were in camp at Yellowstone Falls. 
Not far from the Raidersburg party was John Shively, a lone prospector. James Irwin was a recently discharged soldier and disheveled lone tourist encountered on the Yellowstone River, and near Mount Washburn was Texas Jack, Jack Omohundro, a scout with a small party of English tourists. On the afternoon of August 23, 1877, George Cowan met a scout in the Lower Geyser Basin from an army party that included Civil War icon General William Tecumseh Sherman, whom President Ulysses S. Grant had put in charge of Native American wars. The scout told the Cowans about the Big Hole Battle, but promised them that the Nez Perce were not coming to Yellowstone because they were scared of geysers. George was assured that he and his family were as safe in the park as we would be in New York City, he recalled. That night, Emma strummed her guitar and sang campfire songs in celebration of the last night of her vacation. She didn't know that Nez Perce scouts were listening. Emma woke George up early the next morning, telling him that she could hear the Indians talking outside their tent. George dressed quickly and went to meet them, carrying his forty-five caliber needle gun, then down to its last five cartridges. A young man named Red Scout, a skilled English speaker, told George that he and the men belonged to the Flathead tribe and were on their way to the buffalo hunting grounds of eastern Montana. George, an attorney, said that he subjected this talking Indian Charlie to what might be termed a rigid cross-examination, and at length so cornered him in his statements that he was forced to acknowledge that they were Nez Perce Indians. Years later, George admitted that had he not been such an arrogant hothead, a lot of bloodshed, mostly his own, could have been avoided. Why is it, we ask ourselves, that there's always one smartass at the beginning of every disaster, ready and willing to stir things up further? George was soon surrounded by around 200 Nez Perce, at which point that forty-five caliber needle gun probably didn't feel as lethal as before. But that still didn't stop him. His temper flared when he saw a member of his party about to dole out flour and sugar to around two dozen Nez Perce hanging around the back of his baggage wagon. I immediately ran up, using my gun as a sort of a club weapon, and made the Indians disperse or stand aside, George said. He went on to tell the newspapers later, if the Indians got any of our supplies, they would be taken by force. Really? Red Scout took note. The Cowans tried to flee, but a line of mounted Nez Perce halted them at gunpoint. Red Scout informed George that he and his party were to be marched seven miles up the creek, then known as the East Fork of the Firehole River, to see Chief Looking Glass, the leader of his band, who Red Scout added, was friendly with the whites. When the wagons could go no further, they were ransacked, and the group continued on horseback. In the meadow where Cowan Creek joins Nez Perce Creek, the Cowans met with Chief Looking Glass, Chief Joseph, Chief Whitebird, and a sub-chief named Poker Joe, who, as was mentioned in Part 1, earned his sobriquet in the Bitterroot Valley from his love of gambling. Poker Joe, acting as translator, told the Cowans that the chiefs wished to free them, but under one condition, give the Nez Perce their fresh horses and saddles for fleeing, and their guns and ammunition for hunting buffalo, and they could take with them an equal number of worn-out Nez Perce steeds, which would get them back to the white settlements. Under the circumstances, what could the Cowans say? A Civil War veteran who was raised on the Wisconsin frontier, Cowan moved to Last Chance Gulch in Helena in 1865 to prospect for gold. A lawyer by trade, he was tapped by Montana Territorial Governor Thomas Meager in 1867 to lead soldiers to fight Native Americans. 
George had a stubborn streak a mile long, and by God, he wasn't backing down for anybody. Poker Joe also warned the Cowans of the limits of the chief's power over some of the distraught Nez Perce warriors. He said that the young warriors, having lost many friends and relatives in the big hole fight, were mad and angry and were hard to keep in control by their chiefs. Poker Joe told the Cowans to travel fast through the woods, away from the main trail, lest they be spotted again. But George Cowan didn't heed his warning. After a half mile of struggling over down timber and through bogs, Cowan and his group returned to the trail. Almost at once, around 75 Nez Perce between the ages of 18 and 25 ambushed them. One was Red Scout, who George noted was conspicuous in the command of this party of young Indians. Red Scout told the Cowans that the tribe had changed its mind about letting them go. Red Scout was the one George had threatened to pistol whip back at the campsite when the Braves were asking for flour. As the gang marched the Cowan party back upstream, two warriors rode ahead. George believed it was to make sure the chiefs were nowhere near, and then came charging back. Emma wrote that shots followed in Indian yells and all was confusion. George took a bullet blast to his left thigh. He saw another Nez Perce aiming a rifle at his head, so he leapt off his horse to avoid being hit. His wounded leg buckled and he rolled down a knoll and came to rest lying down against a fallen tree. Red Scout and another Nez Perce man ran to him, but Emma reached her husband first. She threw her body over George to shield him. Red Scout pointed a large dragoon revolver at George's head, but Emma stayed in front of what she later described as that immense navy pistol and begged the Indian to shoot her first. Red Scout seemed disinclined to harm her, George later told the newspapers. Red Scout did catch Emma's right wrist as she tried to cover George, and he lifted her away as she clung to her husband's neck with her left arm. This pulled George into a partial sitting position. The other Nez Perce warrior reached into his blanket, drew a revolver, and fired the kill shot, point blank. The ball struck me on the left side of my forehead, George said. I saw the smoke issuing from the pistol and heard the shot, but was rendered unconscious. Moments later, Poker Joe, sent by Chief Looking Glass and Chief Whitebird, rode up to the melee on horseback to halt the violence. Red Scout, who knew he had disobeyed his chiefs, protected Emma and her siblings after George was shot and helped Poker Joe quell the crowd, which included men throwing rocks at George's bleeding head. A year later, Red Scout, who was one of just a few Nez Perce to escape into Canada, spoke to a journalist named Duncan MacDonald, whose father was a Scottish fur trader and whose mother was a Nez Perce woman. Red Scout confessed that he had been in the wrong and explained why he safeguarded Emma and her 13-year-old sister, Ida. I had not the heart to see those women abused, Red Scout told MacDonald, as quoted in an 1878 article in the New Northwest, a newspaper in Deer Lodge. I thought we had done them enough wrong in killing their relations against the wishes of the chief. But the Nez Perce weren't finished with George Cowan. He awoke hours later on the opposite side of the downed tree covered in blood, his pockets turned inside out and emptied. He pulled mightily on a branch to stand upright. Then he turned and saw a lone Nez Perce waiting for him on horseback. The man dismounted, dropped to a knee, and fired a single shot that ripped through George's left hip and came out his abdomen. This felled me to the ground again. Falling with my face downward, George said, I turned my head so that its side rested on the ground and felt the warm blood running from my nose, occasioned by its contact with the ground. Finally, three bullets later, the Nez Perce left George Cowan for dead. Another member of the Raidersburg party, Albert Oldham, was shot in the face by one of the Nez Perce Braves. 
The ball had penetrated my left cheek, and passing downwards had cut the tongue and come out beneath the jaw on the right side. The wound was very painful. I then dropped down in the bushes, and I laid there until Saturday night, 36 hours from the time of the shooting. My sufferings during that time were intense. On Sunday, I killed a grouse, but I could eat none of it, as my tongue was swollen so badly it protruded from my mouth. It was with the greatest difficulty that I could breathe. On Monday night, I crossed the Madison and hid among some willows on a little island, and on the following morning I saw some Indians on Gibbon's Fork. I watched them closely, intending, if they came near me, to try and kill one of them and get his pony. The ford was close by, and I saw two soldiers coming across. As they came closer, I got up on my knees so as to speak, but I could only make a grunting noise. They heard me, and riding up to where I was, I motioned for a pencil, which they gave me, and I wrote what I wanted them to know. They camped nearby and began doctoring me up. After they got some sugar in my mouth and about the roots of my tongue, the swelling began to go down, and I soon got to talk a little and swallow some food they had prepared for me. They then moved on to Howard's command, where I found my fellow travelers, Arnold and Mann. The Nez Perce took Emma and her sister captive, along with their brother Frank, who the tribe hoped could guide them up the creek and across the park. In the Nez Perce camp that night near Mary Mountain, Emma wept on a blanket not far from Chief Joseph. She remembered him being somber and silent, foreseeing in his gloomy meditations possibly the unhappy ending of this campaign. Hawkins says that Chief Joseph directed a woman in the tribe to give Emma a baby to hold, a gesture meant to cheer her spirit. When Emma took the child, she wrote that she saw a glimmer of a smile on Chief Joseph's face. The infant's mother asked Emma's brother, why cry? He said it was because Emma believed that her husband had just been killed. The Nez Perce woman replied, She heartsick. Miles away, George Cowan's hard-headedness had finally become an asset. He was alive and still moving. By the banks of the Nez Perce Creek, he crawled on his elbows into a willow thicket and then managed to cross the stream. It took him four days to crawl ten miles back to his camp in the Lower Geyser Basin. There, Two of General Howard's army scouts discovered him. Their first words were, Who the hell are you? When George answered, they replied, Why, we expected to bury you. In a diary of the Nez Perce War, Army Scout William Connolly noted that on August 30th, 1877, he found a wounded man shot three times by the Nez Perce Indians. The army men attempted to comfort George by building him a campfire. That night, the campfire spread into a small forest fire that nearly killed George again. I crawled through this fire for perhaps 30 yards until I got clear of it, he said, burning both my hands and knees in so doing. Emma woke the morning after her capture to find a Nez Perce woman trying to keep her warm by rebuilding the campfire by her side. The woman then came and spread a piece of canvas across my shoulders to keep off the dampness, Emma wrote. Her sister Ida slept nearby on buffalo robes prepared by Nez Perce women who also gave her bread and brewed her tea made from willow bark. The Nez Perce women slept surrounding their frightened charge. The tribe continued east, crossing the Yellowstone River on what is now Nez Perce Ford. On the far side, Nez Perce women offered Emma a lunch of Yellowstone cutthroat trout, giving a clue as to what the tribe ate on part of their journey. Emma declined, she wrote. From a great string of fish, the largest were selected cut in two, dumped into an immense camp kettle filled with water, and boiled to a pulp. The formality of cleaning had not entered into the formula. While I admit the tastes differ, 
I prefer having my trout dressed. Poker Joe again released Emma and her siblings, and this time he rode with them back across the Yellowstone River and a half mile downstream until they were well along the trail. He had given Emma and her family their bedding, a waterproof tarp, bread, matches, two old horses, and a jacket for young Ida. The chief shook their hands and said, Ride all night, all day, no sleep. This time they took his advice. George and Emma were reunited days later at the Butler's Ranch, home of early settlers in the Paradise Valley, south of Livingston. On the way home, disaster struck them one more time. Seven miles from Bozeman, George and Emma's two-seat wagon flipped over and tossed them out before careening down an embankment and coming to rest upside down in some pine trees above a river. Then, in Bozeman, as George rested in a hotel bed, his doctor sat down beside him and collapsed the bed frame. George went sprawling onto the floor and there suggested that someone might as well use artillery on him since nothing else could seem to finish him off. Later in his life, George confessed to his daughter Ethel that perhaps his well-known bluntness might have escalated the situation, particularly with regard to Red Scout. I think my great-grandfather realized he could have handled it a little more diplomatically, Ethel Hawkins said in an interview with writer-journalist Nate Schweber. It's one of those incidents where hot-headedness prevailed, both with the young Indians and my great-grandfather. Nate Schweber is also the author of Fly Fishing in Yellowstone's National Park, An Insider's Guide to the 50 Best Places, a book in which he talks at length about the Cowan Party and their predicament. On August 23rd, the Helena party was camped at Yellowstone Falls when they spotted the Nez Perce. In his diary, Frederick Pfister writes, Yesterday we were encamped near Sulphur Mountain, and during the afternoon one of the boys said he had seen either a herd of buffalo or elk or a band of Indians about five or six miles above us on either side of the Yellowstone River. Duncan took a spyglass and went up on the mountain to determine, if possible, what they were. He soon returned and said, They were Indians and proposed that we get out of that area as soon as possible. We accordingly packed up and moved back three or four miles when one of the boys proposed that we go no further, as Howard was after the Indians and by tomorrow they'd be gone, and we pitched our tents there. We camped for the night, but some of the boys wanted to go back home, but the majority was of the mind to go ahead to the geysers as we had come this far, and the journey was almost completed. Another member of the Helena hunting party, Ben Stone, recalled, we finally agreed to wait until the next day when two of us would go and ascertain if the camp had moved, and if so, which way. We then went to bed. Duncan, not feeling safe, took his blankets and made his bed half a mile from camp in the timber, all of us laughing at him. And this again from Fister's diary. We got up about six or seven o'clock this morning, and Andy Weikart and Wilkie took their horses and went out on a scout. They were to fire their guns if they saw Indians, and we waited three or four hours for them to return. It was nearing dinner time, and I left the camp for the purpose of getting wood, leaving some of the boys asleep, and the remainder sitting about the campfire. I was busy getting wood when all of a sudden, pop, pop, went the guns, and I heard the Indians, yip, yip. I looked around and saw the camp full of Indians with the boys jumping and going in every direction. I saw two of the boys coming towards me, and I lit out for the river. I reached the river and on looking back heard two shots and someone exclaimed, Oh my God, I don't know who these two people were, but I think it was Jack Stewart and Kank. Andrew Weikart's account continues from here. Pfister and Dietrich jumped over an embankment and started for the Yellowstone River. 
Pfister jumped the creek at or near the camp, but Dietrich was not so fortunate and fell in, and it happened to be in a hole, so he laid quite still. The grass was high on either side. He stayed in the water for about four hours. The Indians did not see him, so he made good his escape after they, the Indians, had left camp. Roberts and Fowler did some tall running, according to their own account, while the Indians were blazing away at them most every jump, but finally got away all safe. They struck out for Virginia City, which was about a 150-mile hike. The first night they camped in the timber. They laid down beside a big log. One of the boys had a coat on and the other hadn't, so the one with the coat had to lay on the outside. They traveled the next day. They were getting pretty hungry, so they tried fishing. They built a fire and roasted one, the other they saved for another meal. Those two fishes were all they had to eat for nearly three days. They finally met some soldiers in the afternoon of the third day. One eyewitness account reads, Duncan, he lit out from the camp like a scared wolf and got where the timber was the thickest and stayed till dark, then struck out for the Mammoth Springs. Stuart and Kank did not fare so well. The Indians followed them up and shot Stuart in the side and in the calf of the leg. He fell. Then they followed Kank up until they killed him, shot him through the body. One ball struck him in the back of the neck and broke it. I suppose it killed him instantly. They raffled his pockets, then came back and was going to kill Stuart. He asked him to spare his life. They asked him if he had any money. They rolled him over and took $260 and a silver watch. After a time, they told him he could live, so they left him. He dragged himself down to the creek and washed his wound. He looked up and saw his mare coming toward him. He got a halter and put it on her, and then he led her to a log and crawled on top. He rolled her about one mile, but his wound pained him so that he had to get back off. About this time, Stone came hobbling along. He was afflicted with rheumatism anyway, and laying in the water so long had done him no good. The Nez Perce had entered Yellowstone National Park on August 23, 1877, near the Madison River. After the confrontations with the Raidersburg and Helena parties and the burning of the Henderson Ranch, they began to consider the best means of escaping the park, figuring that the army would be blocking the easiest exits. Having passed this way before on yearly trips to buffalo hunting territory, they knew of three routes by which they could escape. Northwest via the Yellowstone River, northeast via Clark's Fork of the Yellowstone, or east via the Shoshone River. They finally selected an unknown and most difficult route over the Absaroka Mountains, reaching an elevation of nearly 10,000 feet. The scout, Fisher, following them, said, It was the roughest country I ever undertook to pass through. About every foot of it was obstructed with dead and fallen timber and huge blocks of grammar. After Fisher and his group of Bannocks had a skirmish with the rear guard of the Nez Perce, he broke off the chase and turned back to find General Howard and his soldiers. Once the main body of Nez Perce left the Yellowstone River, they moved up Pelican Creek onto the Mirror Plateau. They continued east, crossing the Lamar River and ascending one of the major creeks. They reached the divide on the evening of September 5, 1877. On the morning of September 6th, they continued northeast down Crandall Creek and into the canyon of the Clark's Fork of the Yellowstone. Although General Howard's forces had never really been very far from the Nez Perce, Howard never engaged the Indians while in the park and chose an easier route to Clark's Fork. 
Howard and his soldiers crossed Yellowstone by a mere northerly and easier route and reached the northeast corner of the park at Clark's Fork on September 7th. From Fisher's scouting, the Army was now aware that the Nez Perce would emerge from the mountains near the Clark's Fork or the Shoshone Rivers. Howard continued on down the Clark's Fork River, hoping to trap the Nez Perce between his force and that of Colonel Sturgis waiting below. Sturgis had his own axe to grind. His son had been killed just a year before in the Battle of the Little Bighorn. To prevent any news of their location getting to the Army during their difficult passage down from the summit of the Absarokas to the plains, the Nez Perce hunted down and killed white prospectors and hunters in that area. Ten men were known to have been killed by the Indians, and additional bodies were discovered over the next several months. As other Army troops ordered to guard the Yellowstone exits were not yet in place, Sturgis set up his base on the plains from where he had an expansive view and could move quickly toward either Clark's Fork or to the Shoshone River. He seems to have discounted the Clark's Fork exit, finding that no trail could possibly lead through that. The lower several miles of Clark's Fork passed through a narrow canyon with vertical walls 800 feet high. On September 8th, when the Nez Perce reached a point six miles from Sturgis's force on top of a ridge near what is now called Dead Indian Pass, their advance scouts observed the soldiers far below awaiting their appearance. If the Indians took the open and easy route to reach the plains, their 2,000 horses and 700 people would be easily visible. Instead, they attempted a difficult maneuver to mislead the soldiers. They took a route going south toward the Shoshone River, and then, invisible to Army scouts, milled their horses in a big circle to conceal their trail and sell the Army on the idea that they were headed south. They then sneaked back north, concealed by heavy timber, and traversed Dead Indian Gulch down to the Clark's Fork River. Dead Indian Gulch was a narrow, steep-sided slit in the rock, dropping almost vertically for a thousand feet, and barely wide enough for two horses to go side by side. In a cleanly executed maneuver, said a military historian, the Nez Perce had countered an extremely serious threat and won a brilliant, though temporary, respite. Sturgis took the bait and led his soldiers away from the Clark's Fork and headed south toward the Shoshone. The Nez Perce passed out onto the plains unopposed. Sturgis quickly realized his error and turned around. He met up with Howard on September 11th, who had descended the Clark's Fork following the Nez Perce's route, but the two military forces were now two days and 50 miles behind the Nez Perce. We hope you enjoyed this special premium member-only presentation of I Will Fight No More Forever, Part 2, covering the incredible story of what happened when a renegade band of Nez Perce Indians passed through the newly created Yellowstone National Park as they were being pursued by elements of the U.S. Cavalry whose job it was to force their surrender and move them to a reservation far distant from their native lands. In Part 3, coming soon, Chief Joseph and his tribe, attempting to escape to Canada, are finally cornered just 40 miles shy of their objective. It's a sad story of a good Indian tribe forced to ruthless actions as a result of greed and government actions that supported the stealing of Indian lands. 
This three-episode series has been re-edited and re-engineered for your listening enjoyment. We appreciate your support. Stay tuned for new episodes at 1001 Heroes, at 1001 Classic Short Stories, and 1001 Stories for the Road. If you don't already have the app, which is called 1001 Stories Network, it's free and now available at both the Apple App Store and the Google Play App Store. We placed the links in the show notes for you. Premium members, if you haven't tried A Scandal in Bohemia at 1001 Classic Short Stories, give it a try. I'm finishing it up with the final part, part three, in just a few days. And since you're always the first to know, I'm currently working on a new series of episodes for 1001 Heroes called 1001's Greatest Unsolved Mysteries. The first episode being one the FBI worked on for years and could not solve, cattle mutilations. It's a very big deal. Over 10,000 separate incidents have been recorded since 1967 in the Middle U.S. and the Southwest and in South America, with cattle and horses being found terribly mutilated, mostly in the same manner, with the left side of the head mutilated, all entrails removed, and all blood removed, and without a drop of blood on the ground, and no surrounding signs of struggle or human footprints. Reports of strange glowing lights in the areas where the mutilations occurred have often been reported in conjunction with the mutilations. We'll give you all the facts and let you decide. No one has been able to stop it or pin down the answer. But as you can imagine, there are lots of theories. Please remember to share our episodes with others and encourage friends to listen and join us. I was once asked, and you might get the same question, why would someone want to listen to you? when the story's already out there. I thought it was a sort of a cruel question at first, but I thought about it, and it wasn't long before I had the answer. That is, I arrange it and tell it better than most. I research deeply. I look for facts my listeners most likely have never heard before, and I tell it with passion. And sometimes, as in the case of our most recent story, Eugene Bullard, the story really isn't out there. And it's just waiting to be found and told. And I love doing these stories, all of them. I know that comes through for you, or you wouldn't be here. Stay with us, because it only gets better and better. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs>